My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Thrilled that you are here with us. And I want to uh, give a shout out to those who are in Alaska, our team that's up there right now. Uh, I had an opportunity about six or seven years ago to go and to meet uh, our leaders and our friends at Stanley Bible Camp and see the work firsthand. And I've been on several of those trips and it's such a beautiful place and has such a, uh, just a prominent part of my heart. And for us to be able to walk alongside those leaders there, they're doing incredible work uh, for the, the kids and teenagers throughout Southwest rural Alaska uh, is such a huge honor and privilege just for us to be able to, to serve them. So if you're not aware, Alaska, it leads the way in all the wrong categories in terms of uh, safety and health and, um, and all that for kids. So for us to be able to go and spend a week, the, the Mark McGee, who's the director there, he always says that it, for a lot of these kids, it's the safest week of the year for them. And so for us to be able to just stand there and tell them how much Jesus loves them is huge. So please be praying for them. We are continuing a series in uh, 1 Samuel. If you have a Bible, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, open to 1 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, we think a physical copy of the Scriptures is best. That way there are things you can write down and take, take notes and that. But if you have a copy uh, through an app on your phone or smart device um, or, or tablet or anything like that, that's good as well. My, um, my kids go back to school this week. Uh, there's a low grumble. Um, so in the Artino house, there is much rejoicing as well as weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, I've had to explain to my son, you can't drop out of school in the third grade. You're going to have to go back. You really, you need to keep going, buddy. Um, but we had a great summer, excited for the fall that will be here in about six months. So... Um, if you are just getting back uh, to us, or if you've been out for a little while, uh, we are in a series called We Want a King, and we're doing like a biographical look at these kings of uh, Israel, so starting with Saul, and then David, and then we'll end with, with Solomon. And typically what we do, if you're unfamiliar with Redemption Church, is we take a passage of Scripture, and as best we can, we try to work through verse by verse through that particular section. So we're in First chapter, First Samuel chapter 11 this morning, um, and we'll, we'll start there. Let me pray first, and just ask God to help us uh, before we get into this uh, this morning. Father, we love you. God, thank you so much for just what you've allowed us to do already. Uh, it's just such a great thing for us to be able to gather and to see one another and just to be encouraged uh, just by the presence of one another and the, the, the hugs and the laughs and the smiles and God just seeing each other and uh, reconnecting like that is just such a gift from you. And, and then you let us lift our voices and sing true things about you. And we're led by such incredible musicians and leaders and people who love you. And so, God, it's just such a gift. And now you give us your very word. And, uh, God, we get to hear from you. But God, what I'm asking for next, um, God, really comes with a confession, at least in my own life. I spend so much of my days and my time uh, striving out of my own power and out of my own energy uh, to try to achieve what I can do on my own. And God, I think there's a lot of people in the room or watching God who would just agree with me that that's exhausting. And so, God, uh, I don't want this moment to be that at all. God, I'm just praying that by your Spirit, you would do something that I could never do in my own power, that we could never experience in our own power. God, that you would bring real 
change and transformation, God, that your very spirit would just breathe life into us. And God, that you would move and hover over us. And God, that the distractions and the noise of just the, the world and our week and even what we have to do today and Monday, God, that you would silence that. You tell us in your word, God, that you actually quiet us in your love. And so I'm praying that you would do that. And God, I'm praying that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak directly to us. God, I believe that you have something very specific to say to each and every person who's listening. And God, my, my prayer is that we would just have ears to hear. And so uh, if you're in the room or you're listening online, I just want to invite you just to pray that very simple prayer. And maybe, you don't, maybe you don't pray a lot or ever at all, but just pray that you would be able to hear God this morning. So just, I want to just invite you to just pray that right now. God, let us hear you. Holy Spirit, come. God, move with freedom and power in this place. Jesus, we love you so much, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. I probably shouldn't say this, but low-key, when I was asking God to speak to us and the phone rang, I was like, wow, God, okay. I didn't think you did that, but... Okay, like I said, I probably shouldn't have mentioned that. All right, here's where we are in the story. Because it's a narrative and because it's summer, I feel like we have to kind of like just recap a little bit to get on the same page. So I'll try to do this real quick. In chapter eight, which is where we started, the people of Israel, God's people, they say, we want a king. And there's a, there's a line that they have in their request that really kind of reveals their heart. That say, we want a king like all the other nations have. We want to be like them, and we want to have a centralized leadership structure that protects our power and protects our positions, that, that protects our platform, that protects the stuff that we have. So they've come into a place of prominence. They're in the promised land. They're looking around at all the other nations, and the other nations don't have to follow these kind of odd and peculiar rules that God has set on his people because God's trying to set his people apart. And then because they're also kind of coming into this type of prominence, they're looking around. They're like, we're very vulnerable to lose the things that we've earned. And these other nations that have centralized leadership that have a king and have these armies, uh, they're able to protect their stuff. We want that too. And there's a part of them too that, quite frankly, they've just grown weary at being odd. They've grown weary at being set apart. God says over his people, you are holy as I am holy. You are other than. You are unique people because I'm a unique God. I was having a conversation with my daughters, and uh, they're kind of at the age where a lot of their friends, uh, they, their families don't have the same uh, like norms or, or standards or values. And so as they're kind of interacting with some of those friends, you know, their friends are like listening to things that my kids aren't, or they're watching things that my kids aren't, or they have things that my kids don't have. And it's just kind of different. And, and they're, they just, they weren't complaining, but they were, were just having a conversation. They're like, dad, do you know what that feels like? Do you know what that feels like to be different like that? And one daughter said, do you know what it feels like to be left out? And again, they weren't complaining, but, they, but I could hear it. I could hear this is like, yeah, it gets kind of 
tiring. And the nation of Israel kind of feels like that. They're like, we're kind of, we don't want to, we don't want to be different. We want to be like the other nations. And so God, through the prophet Samuel, says, well, I am your king, and the king that you're asking for is a king who's going to take from you, and I'm a king who's given so much to you. Jeremy last week took us through chapter 9 and 10. If you haven't seen that or if you weren't here for that, I want to encourage you to go back and watch that. And here comes Saul, and uh, Saul is like the perfect picture of what a king would be. He's tall, he's handsome, uh, and after he's found hiding in the luggage, which is a pretty funny story, he's presented as king. So the people ask for a king, Saul looks the part, God presents him, puts him forward. And so with that begins chapter 11, and it's kind of an odd start. Chapter 11, verse 1 says this, Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to him, "Uh, make a treaty with us and we'll be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. And if no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. When they say that, if no one comes to rescue us, other translations, they say it, I think, a little bit more appropriately. It's as if they're kind of saying, we already know there's nobody who can save us, but can you just give us some time? Because perhaps, maybe, I mean, it's like they ask it already knowing no one's going to sign up to rescue them. And when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. And just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, and he asked, what's wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. So the expectation, if you just turn the page on chapter 10, where Saul was presented and brought forth as his king, the expectation is that the next scene that opens would be, well, of course, Saul's going to be in the palace. He's going to be on a throne. He's going to have his kind of royal court, his guys around him. But instead, when we see him, he's out working as a farmer. And commentators kind of have like mixed thoughts on why this is. Uh, Some of it is, well, it's just the humility of Saul. You know, Saul just goes back to the substantive work of being a farmer. He just kind of is that kind of guy. Uh, Others will say, well, it's like a picture of what we see in the judges. So the judges were these rulers who were kind of like a just-in-time type of leader. Like they were kind of in the background until they were needed, and then they would rise up uh, in the moment. Uh, But a lot of commentators would say, like, well, Saul didn't really know what to do. So it's all pretty new to the nation. It's pretty new to Saul. So he's like, all right, I guess I'll just go back to work. That was kind of weird, but all right, I just go back to working in the farm. And there's something else that's really important to pay attention to because there is a theme that kind of ties chapter 10 and chapter 11 together. It's this question in the end of chapter 10 in verse 27, how can this man save us? Now, when they're asking that question, they're talking about Saul, of course. And it's not just uh, like an inquiry. It's not just like they're curious, like, how is he going to do it? There's actually a kind of like mockery or even like an animosity in this question. And it's not necessarily because of an inadequacy in Saul, because Saul hasn't really done anything. He hasn't really had a, a, a chance. I mean, he's tall and he's handsome, um, you know, which doesn't count for anything. Am I right? 
that was for me. Um, you know, he found the donkeys. That's a weird story. He was hiding in the baggage. Um, but then he, then he just kind of goes home. But when they are saying, how can this man save us? This is, this is where this is coming from. Because Samuel earlier, he reminded the people and he said, okay, you're going to get a king, but just so you know, this king is going to be subordinate to God. So God's still going to be over this king. Like you're going to get the king that you ask for, but God's still going to be over this king. And the people are really frustrated by that. They're like, this is kind of defeating the whole purpose of what we're asking for. We're asking for a king like the other nations have. If you give us a king who's still subordinate to God, it's not like the other nations. So they kind of just are like really frustrated with the whole thing. They're like, that's not the point. That's not really what we're asking for. The kind of salvation that we want, which sets us free to be unlike what we really are is not going to be ours. So they're like, well, how's this king going to save us? And, and the, the underlying issue is really pretty straightforward. And Samuel kind of sees through this because he says in verse 19 of chapter 10, today you've rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. Here's what Samuel is saying. When you reject God as savior, you don't have a savior. You're asking for a savior. You're asking for a king. But you're rejecting God as savior, which means you don't really have a savior. When you look for salvation in anything or anyone else other than the person of Jesus, you don't have a savior. You don't have a king that saves. You have a tyrant that takes. And I feel like for like two chapters at least, Samuel, God, is trying to tell that to the people. You keep, you're, asking for, you're asking for a savior, that's not me. You're asking for a king, that's not me. I'm a savior who gives. I'm a savior who saves. I'm a king who gives. You're asking for a tyrant that takes. And it's as if the people are like, yeah, 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 we don't care. We don't care. Just give us the king like everybody else has. And if you fast forward all the way to the book of Acts, because this theme runs through the scriptures because this theme runs through humanity, because it runs through my heart, and it runs through your heart. And if you, if you go forward to the book of Acts, uh, the, the apostles are on the street, it's after the ascension of Jesus, and, and the thing that they're walking around saying is they're saying, look, there is salvation in no one else except Jesus, because he's the only one who's qualified to save. And if you reject the Savior, you're going to find yourself saying, how could this save me? How could this one save me? We all are asking that question. We're going to talk about that just a little bit more in, in, a, in a second. But whether you're a Jesus person or you're not a Jesus person, we all are asking that question, what's going to save me? And we're striving. We're trying to find that thing. Who's going to save me? And, and by this point, a lot of you, most of you have already experienced that the thing in life or the person in life you thought would save you can't. And that's what the people of Israel are going to discover. That's why the psalmist tells us in Psalm 146, which this, by the way, would be a great psalm to hold on to, especially, I think, for the next two years. Psalm 146 says this, don't trust in princes. If I can make it kind of relevant for our, our moment here. Don't trust in politicians. Don't trust in presidents. For their breath will eventually expire. And they'll be gone. 
and they'll be irrelevant. There's only one in whom to trust, the Scripture says. It's a promise of God. It's an invitation of where to put your trust. It's an invitation of freedom. Don't trust in princes. Don't trust in the promises of man. Trust in the promises of God. Because the promises of God have never failed, will never fail. Trust in the one, if you read that psalm, trust in the one who created everything that you see and everything you can't see and who holds it all together. That's where your trust should be. So you have that in the end of 10, it's like, well, how's this guy, how's this king going to save us? And then in chapter 11, verse 3, the next statement kind of concerning the same thing, concerning that salvation is, well, if there's no one to save us. So let's just kind of get on the same page as we move forward. The people want saving or they want someone who can save them, but the salvation that they want is a saving of their own making, a saving of their own agenda, a salvation on their own terms, a salvation that fits the shape of what matters most to them. It's a self-centered and a self-serving salvation. That's what the people want. But God says, I alone am the king who can save. I'll do it before and I'll do it again. And people are like, I don't know, we want, give us the tall, handsome guy instead. We'll try him out. So chapter 11 presents us with a real life scenario. The need for saving. We're going to see how that salvation shows up. And then finally, we'll see what makes it possible what makes salvation um, ultimately, who's going to bring it. So uh, chapter 11, if you take notes, this is just a really easy breakdown of this, of this chapter. So the, the chapter starts with a real threat. You see that in the first four verses. Uh, specifically, that verse three kind of highlights this because the people are like, well, there's no one to save us. Even though we're going to go looking, we already know there's no one to save us. So you have, it starts with a real threat. And then the second section is, well, there is a real solution. And you see that in verses 5 through 11. It's really highlighted by verse 9, uh, where it's going to say, like, you will be delivered. And then lastly, we're going to see there is a real king. There is a real king, and we see that in verses 12 through 15, especially in verse 13, where Saul is going to say, for this day it's the Lord who has rescued Israel. So let's get into this and try to move through this fairly quickly. Okay, so here's what's happening in chapter 11. Jeremy already last week talked about the Philistines. We're going to run into the Philistines again, but this time it's a different enemy. It's the Ammonites, and the Ammonites are descendants uh, from Lot. Lot is a brother of Abraham. He had an inappropriate relationship, and so the Ammonites are kind of like cousins of the Israelites, and they are a ruthless people. They are a people who adopt this policy of enslaving their enemies, and then they employ like this genocide to completely wipe them out. So the Philistines... Uh, are a major problem to the west of the nation of Israel, and the Ammonites are a huge nuisance on the eastern side of the nation of Israel. And this little area of Jabesh Gilead is the far easternmost people of Israel. And the main problem with the Ammonites is their king, this warlord named Nahash. And Nahash has built a reputation for terrorizing his enemies. And his favorite expression of brutality is he would gouge out the right eye of his enemies. Now, if you're not familiar with the kind of the way that warfare worked in this day, that's, you might just think, well, that just seems really weird and really just unnecessarily cruel. 
But in this day, uh, a soldier would typically hold their shield in their left hand, and they would have their shield kind of up like this, um, and then their weapon would be in their right hand. So most of the time, your left eye would be covered because your shield is up like this, and you'd have to get them with your weapon with your right hand. So if you gouge out their right eye, you essentially make them completely ineffective for battle. And Nahash knows that. And, and he understands that, that, he, that not only will it neutralize them, but it will also humiliate them. And that's the whole thing about Nahash, is he wants to intimidate and he wants to humiliate the people of God. And what's crazy is when he shows up, it's like he comes on the scene, and from the text, the people are immediately ready to capitulate. They're immediately ready to do whatever he said. He, they, they're like, uh, okay, make a treaty with us. We'll serve you whatever it is that you want. Just give us, give us seven days. We're going to try to figure out a plan. We're going to see if we can find somebody to save us. And so they send all their messengers out, but they already know like there's nobody there who's going to save us. Okay. Now, if you're paying attention and if you've been tracking with the story, you're like, well, wait, what just happened? Because like a chapter ago, everyone was like, long live the king. I mean, there, there's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of hype in the nation. Our first king, we're so excited. And then the first enemy comes on the scene. They're like, okay, we'll do whatever you say. Just give us a little bit of time. We don't think there's going to be anybody to help us, but we'll, we'll, sign, we'll sign the treaty. So what in the world, what happened there? Well, it's the same thing that happens to you and the same things that happen to me. They've forgotten what God has done for them in the past. They forgot who God is. They forgot what he's done. They forgot what he's capable of. It's the same thing you and I do all the time. There's some kind of circumstance, some kind of trouble, or something in your life that we bump into that comes upon us and that's just like, well, this is horrible, this is unavoidable, there's no way that I, I, there's no way of, uh, that I could move forward, there's no way of winning, so I'm just going to surrender, I'm just going to capitulate. And it's like, wait, 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 don't you remember who God is? Don't you remember what he's, what he's done? Don't you remember what he's capable of? Don't you remember his faithfulness? Don't you remember that, that moment where you just felt like there was no way, but he came through? Don't you remember? We just sang Waymaker. Do you, do you remember? Do you remember the lyrics to that song? But our trouble, our problems, circumstances, it all just gets so much bigger. We just totally forget what God had done. And for the people for the people of God, for Israelites, this is what's been done. They were brought out of Egypt. They were brought out of enslavement. They, 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 you, you would think that someone would say, wait a minute, guys, guys, I remember like our forefathers in Egypt. Remember when they had to build bricks? Remember how horrible that was for them? Remember all the things that they had to go through? Remember, remember the pillar of fire? Remember the pillar of smoke? Remember manna? Anybody remember manna? That was a big deal. We're starving out there. Manna shows up. Then we got the birds. That was great. Remember the water came from nowhere? Remember, remember we were trapped by the Red Sea and God actually opened it up? Remember? Nobody does that. You'd think someone would say, hey, remember when Samuel set up the Ebenezer, the big pile of rocks, massive thing of rocks, and the whole reason he set it up is like, okay, because we're quick to forget, we need something that we can see and touch, 
And every time we walk by it, we're going to be able to look at it and be like, ah, that is a reminder of the faithfulness of God. That is a reminder of what God can do and what God has done. This is a reminder that the Lord has helped us. It's what Samuel tells the people. Now think about your own life. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, think about where you would be if it were not for the intervening hand of God who has helped you in so many different times and so many different ways and so many different places. Think about the, all the ways that God has saved you spiritually, physically. I know in my own life, I look back and I was like, there are so many foolish things that should have literally been the end of me. And God in his mercy and his grace has spared me in so many ways. One of the reasons why it's so good for us to come together, and Connor says this so often, he's like, sing for each other's faith. It's a reminder of what God has done. Because a lot of times we're so forgetful because we're so covered up in what's going on in our life that we can't even remember who God is or what he's done. And so we need one another to sing the faith that we don't even have at the moment. And as I hear you sing about the goodness of God, and as I hear you sing about the provision of God, as I hear you sing about the salvation of God, I am reminded of what God has done in my own life. But that's not happening here. They have forgot. And they need to be reminded that he's the God who helps, and he's the God who provides and sees, and he's the God who saves. I know in my own life, there are so many times where I'm just like the Israelites. Calamity comes. I'm like, all right, where do I sign the treaty? Where do I fold? My doubt, my fear. Where do I need another king to try to save me in this moment? We need to be reminded of what the psalmist who says, bless the Lord, O my soul. So the, the psalmist is giving us a He's giving us a practice because he's, he's teaching us to, to talk to ourselves. A lot of times we let our circumstances talk to us and we don't let the words of God or, or the reality of who God is preach to us. So the psalmist says, preach to yourself by saying, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. So to say it positively, remember all his benefits. Preach the benefits of God to yourself because we're constantly letting our worry or our fear or our doubt or our concern and real things, real things in life, we're letting those things preach to us, but we are not preaching the benefits of who God is and what he has done and what he's capable of. So it might just be a great practice for you this week every time that you are being preached to by those things to preach to yourself, uh, recall what God has done and who he is. Remember that he is the God who delivers from calamity and restores, who's committed to redemption and restoration of his people. But they forgot. And then Nahash, and it's interesting because Nahash is a name that means serpent, means snake. And if you remember the work of the serpent in, in the garden, if you're not familiar with the biblical story, if you go back to the book of Genesis, the work of the serpent uh, is this really the same play that he's using today. It's the same play that Nahash is using right now. Because the work of Satan, the work of the serpent, is to cast doubt on the goodness of God. God's not really who he says he is. He's really holding out on you. That's the play of the serpent. And the play of the serpent is to start division between man and God. 
God and to start division between us, one another, to blind us, to shame us, to humiliate us, to try to steal our hearts, to try to steal the fight from within us. That's the play of the serpent. That's the play of Nahash. And Nahash lets the people have their seven days to find a solution, knowing that they won't. They know they won't. He knows they won't. But they will sit in fear, and they will sit in anxiety, and they will sit in anguish in those days. And when they have to go about life missing an eye, they're going to be ineffective in battle, but they will walk forever in the shame of their defeat. And that is the plan of the enemy for you today to blind you to the work of Jesus on your behalf and to blind you to seeing how much you are loved and valued and prized by him, to have you assume the identity of the wounds of your failure and not take on the victory that he purchased on your behalf with his wounds. The, the play of the enemy is to have you live according to the identity of your own wounds of your failures and not in the identity of the wounds of your Savior that have healed you. And if, that's, and if the serpent, if the snake, if the accuser can get you to walk in that shame and, and walk in that lie and not walk in the victory, then his plan is complete. The, the, that is the, that's, the real, that's the real threat. for you to assume a defeated position and surrender to the enemy and enter into a peace treaty with the kingdom of darkness, to look at your life and be like, I've already failed. I'm always going to be a failure. I might as well just sign up and sign a peace treaty with my sin or with the failure or with this kingdom of darkness, and I'll just walk in that. The Bible is very clear that our enemy, Satan, is real. And his work, you know this, church, is to steal and kill and destroy. And his kingdom is set up to do just that in this world. And, and we so often, we do what the people just hear. We're, we're like, okay, we'll, we'll make a treaty with you. You're right. We can't win. And, 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 and yeah, we're going to have to walk around in the world blind and ashamed but we're going to make this treaty with the kingdom of this world because we believe the lie of the enemy that God is not for us and we've forgotten all of his benefits. It's a real threat. But the solution or the promise is so real. Verse six, when Saul heard their words, the spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. So Saul gets real gangster on people right here. And he's like, this is an offer you can't refuse type of thing. He's like, if you don't follow me, this is what's gonna happen to you. So then the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they came out together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek. The men of Israel numbered 300,000 and those of Judah 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went home and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we'll surrender to you and you can do to us whatever you like. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and they slaughtered them until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So Saul rolls up. He's like, why is everybody weeping? What's going on? He hears the story. He gets really angry. He gets super heated. The spirit of the Lord comes on him and he's like, okay, here's what's going to happen. By high noon tomorrow, you're going to be rescued. 
And here's what you have to kind of understand. It's not enough that Saul just gets upset about this injustice, that it's not enough that he just gets angry about this oppression. The turning point of the story is that the Spirit of God rushes on him. Because what follows in this story, what you're going to see in the story is not a result of human initiative, but it is a result of divine invasion. And you have to know that and you have to hold on to that moving forward in the story. It's when Jesus says to his followers, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Saul's learning that. He learns that in a powerful way here. Apart from the Spirit of God, I can do nothing. And you got to hold on to that as we work through Saul's story. Alistair Begg is a, a pastor. He's an author. He, he was teaching on this section, and he says this. He says, it is in the awareness of that nothingness, meaning it is in the awareness of apart from God, I can do nothing. That's step one. That's the posture we hold. And in the provision of that somethingness. What is the provision of the somethingness? The Spirit of God, the power and presence of God. In the divine rush of God that this story resolves itself. This is so key for Saul, but it's so key for us. An awareness of our nothingness and a, and a desperate need for the somethingness of the Spirit of God in our lives. Saul is moved to action by the news of people being oppressed, but it's not enough to be angry. It's the empowerment of the Spirit that makes a difference in this story and in our story. So just kind of like a little sidebar from, from this story. If we are a spiritual people, meaning we have the Spirit of God in us, and we are to move towards the issues and the problems of our day in this world, I believe we are, but if we do that in an unspiritual way, meaning if we move towards the issues and the problems of our day, not in a prayerfully dependent on God in humility and love, but rather we start to adopt human tactics and secular understanding and philosophies, we will not engage the world in a meaningful way, the way that God intends. One of the commentators I was reading on this section, he says, the power of God plus or and anger and oppression at injustice, meaning like whatever we look at it in the world, we're like, that's not right. That's not just. And we have like a kind of a holy discontent about that. He's like, but it's together with the power of God creates a situation of confrontation, conflict, and I like this phrase, an alternative social possibility. What is the way that the world could be under the kingship of Jesus? It's what God has given to Israel as you are to be a picture of what this is to the world. And it's what God has given to the church. What would it look like to live under the kingship of Jesus? We'd say, we can show you. That's how we live. That's what we're supposed to be doing. When, but, but, but if we try to work against the things that are not right or not just in the world with the same tactics as the world, that's never going to show up. My, my family, we were 
We spent some time this summer uh, back east. My wife is from uh, Georgia. I grew up in Florida. She's from Georgia. And we were visiting her family in Georgia. And we went to the Martin Luther King Jr. National Historic Park. So it's in the area where Ebenezer Baptist Church is and other things kind of around there. But they have these displays that talk about the work of Dr. King and also some of the civil rights stuff. And so we were walking through there and there was a display uh, that just stopped me dead in my tracks. And it was a picture of people who were gathering gathered around in a circle who were praying. And uh, the title over the picture said, what is this or what are they doing? And I thought that's really interesting. And it had a little like door thing you could open. So it gave you the answer. So the question was, what are they doing or what's happening here? or What is this? And then you open it up and it said, they're praying. I thought, oh, like, this is like in a national, this is a national park. You can go to national nps.gov and you can find this national park. And then it said underneath that, it said the, the power for their movement was in prayer. And, and I say that because there are movements that are looking for power outside of God. Well, when the early church, um, was confronted with the sanctity of life issue with the Roman government. So in Roman culture, uh, if you had a baby and you're like, I don't really want this baby, it has some kind of deformity, or if it was a girl, uh, that wasn't going to be very helpful to you as a family. So you were well within your rights in this culture and within Roman government to just take that baby and take it out to the woods and just drop it out there in the woods, and then some animal would come eat it or the elements would eventually just kill this baby. And that was totally normative. But the early church looks at that, and because of their value of the sanctity of life, just like our church, they said, that's not right. So what did they do? Did they start to picket the forest? Like, hey, can you stay out of the forest or storm the Roman government? No, they didn't do that. They did something much more costly and much more peculiar, quite frankly. They went through the woods and started picking up these kids and bringing them home and adopting these kids who were left out in the elements and left out in the cold. And it was so odd in that day that there was a rumor that got started about the church. They're like, those people are all cannibals. That's why they're going around scooping up babies because they're taking them home to eat them. And this people, what they learned is they're like, no, we're, we are living out this self-sacrificing love that we see in the person of Jesus. This cruciformed life, a life formed by the crucifixion, where it's not arms raised up, but arms raised out. That was the people that were going to be. That's how they changed a culture, by working through the ways of love, by working in the ways of God. All right, so what's the point that I'm trying to make here? It's not enough for us to be angry. It's not enough for us to just raise up and to use human thought and human ideologies and philosophies to fight against what's not right or not just in the world. It is the power of God in the prayerfully dependent people of God. Apart from you, we can do nothing, God. Walking in the ways of God, submitted to the kingship of of God, working out and demonstrating the love of God to see God's will be done in this world as it is in heaven. 
Don't miss this in the story because it's a central part of what we're going to see in Saul's story and David's story as well and our story as the people of God. The Spirit of God, the presence and the power of God is what brings victory. Saul, he gets angry. Uh, he rips open the, the oxen, which is it's kind of a picture of what happens in Judges 19. You can go back and look at that if you want to. It's a very dark and weird story. But it's not just enough that he's furious. It's the holy visitation of God and his empowering spirit that brings freedom from oppression. And it's the same for us, church. God has moved so mightily in our midst in the past. He's doing it right now, even currently. Our, our, our church was asked um, by a group and by the town to be a cooling station for people who are experiencing homelessness in our communities. So this month, we're opening up our spaces so these people can come in and have just a respite from the incredible temperatures. And they just come and kind of hang out and get something to eat, something to drink, use the bathroom, and just basically just stay out of the, of the heat. And there is like crazy ministry happening right now in that. Uh, so many of you are coming to visit and you're just hanging out. We got some of our pastors that are hanging out in there and it's just conversations, just hearing their stories, just loving these people, giving them hugs. Uh, Sean Warren was telling me a story today that there's a woman from our church who just goes in there and she's just going around hugging everybody. And you know, these people are like, hey, please don't come near me because I smell, I'm dirty. And she's like, I don't care. Just give me a hug. And so, and there's like really, really sweet, cool ministry that's happening in that spot. And let me tell you something, it has nothing to do with us. It's not because of us. It's because God is setting captives free inside and outside the walls of the church. And it is not based because we're smart or because we're wealthier, because we're stronger, because of any of these other things. It's just God just saying, you have nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I have everything, so I'm going to bring my everything and work it in and through you and watch what I do. And I'm just saying, God, do more of that. Do more of that. Whatever it takes for us to just keep getting out of the way, keep getting out of the way so that you can show up and just do more and more and more of that. Because the cry of the culture, the cry of the world, and maybe your cry this morning is the same cry of the Israelites. Who will save us? Who's going to save us? Everybody that you bump into, a coworker, a neighbor, a teammate, somebody maybe in your own family, the deep, deep cry in their heart, if they don't say it with their mouth, the deep cry of their heart is, who's going to save me? Who's going to save me? And if we are looking for salvation in the same thing that they are, and if we're striving well, maybe salvation is, is found in what you achieve or what you have or what you work for or what you get. Maybe salvation is in your, your popularity or maybe salvation is in what, what people think of you or your influence or whatever, whatever. If we're doing the same thing, we will miss it and we will not experience the presence and the power of God in our lives. And the world scrambles for solutions to problems, and I'm so thankful for good work, but the battle belongs to the Lord. And it doesn't mean that we don't have anything to do because the people mobilize here in the story. And they come together as one. That's what God has called us to do. And the story ends at somewhere between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. The army comes in and they completely wipe out the Ammonites. And then we're going to end with verse 12. 
says this, the people said to Samuel, so who are the people that said, should Saul reign over us? They're like, where are all the haters? Let's kill him. Saul's like, no one's going to be put to death today. Verse 13, this is really important. For this day, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, has rescued Israel. And so they renew the kingship. In verse 14, all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord, and they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord. And Saul and all the Israelites had a great celebration. This is our story. The band's going to come up. We're going to move into a time of communion now. But this story in 1 Samuel 11, the way that this ends, this is, this is our prayer for, for us. What, what Saul just said there, it's the Lord who rescued. That's the headline in everything that we do, always. We're going to have a team that's going to come back from Alaska we're going to have stories that continue to come out of this cooling center and stuff. And there's, got a, there's all kinds of stuff that we are just desiring to do. But every one of those stories has to end with this line. Well, it's the Lord who rescued. Yeah, I mean, we like went, we showed up, we opened our doors, we did some stuff. But it is the Lord who rescued, full stop. That's the headline. That's the complete story. Jesus is king. And my prayer, our prayer for this church is that God, would you do stuff that if we tried to take credit for it ourselves, we would just look like fools because it's so undeniably God rescuing. Saul in this moment, it's unfortunate that he doesn't carry this posture forward. And it becomes his undoing. And church, it will become our undoing if we do not maintain this posture. And it's Saul who says, it's the Lord who rescued. It's the Spirit of God who moves. It's the power of God that brings salvation. And that's our story going forward. That's the story that communion points to every week. It's why we celebrate it every week, because we are like the Israelite people where we forget the benefits of God. And when Jesus institutes this meal for his people, he's like, I know how stupid you guys are. <laughs> so you're going to need something that you can have and hold and actually taste to remember who I am and to remember what I've done. To remember that I am your God and your King who gave my very last drop of blood for you. I'm your king who gave my life, my very flesh, my whole body to be broken, to be ripped apart for you. And I want you to know that I'm for you, not against you. But you need to be reminded of that. And so here's the bread, here's my body. Here's the cup. Here's my blood to eat and to drink in what, church? In remembrance. So every week we take a moment 
to eat and to drink. And if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian here this morning, then you're invited to take those elements and to eat and to drink in remembrance of what he has done. If you, by your own confession or admission, say, well, that doesn't really describe me. I would not call myself a Christian. Then there's the, the warning uh, that you would not participate in thinking that this is somehow going to earn that for you or somehow like God's going to be happier with you because you ate that cracker and drank that juice. That's not how it works at all. But it is an invitation, and it's a tangible invitation for you. You're looking for salvation. You're looking for someone or something to save you. And Jesus says, it's me. It's me. I'm here today for you. And today just might be the moment where you just have a conversation with God, and you say, okay, I need saving. You're a savior. I can't do it on my own. God, will you save me? It's a really simple prayer. If you'd like to know even more what that means for you and your life, we'll have some people up front. I'd be up front. I'd love to talk to you more about that. And then after we eat and we drink, we, uh, we always stand and sing because the victory of Jesus, past, present, future, is always great to sing about, right? So let's do that now.